Great. Good morning, everyone. My name's uh, Steve. If uh, this is the first time you've been here with us, and I'm uh, the leader of the church here, it's really wonderful to uh, welcome you here. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the book of Genesis. Uh, there's a little break uh, for a week when Eliza is going to uh, come and speak to us, and you can read all of that about that on the front of the uh, news sheet. Um, Eliza's been part of the congregation for years. Many of you will know her. She's a journalist and writer, and uh, uh, she's uh, got a fantastic understanding of the uh, struggles of uh, women in the world, particularly African women, and she's, she's going to uh, talk to us all about that. So that actually fits in with Genesis chapter 1, but I'll uh, tell you a bit more about that later. So over these next few weeks, what we're going to be doing is our series is called Let There Be Light, because it strikes me that Genesis is a very confusing book for people to understand. So God creates the world in that uh, chapter that we just read together, but he seems to do it in entirely the wrong order because we almost have to suspend our understanding of modern science to believe that Genesis 1 can be true. And then there are two people wandering around in a garden, Adam and Eve, Adam on his own, and then a woman is made in a pretty um, unique kind of way. And then a snake turns up that's a talking snake, as it turns out, and they eat of a fruit of a tree, and God gets so upset about this that he casts them out into struggle and strife for the rest of their lives. And then there's Noah with his big boat and he crams every animal on the face of the earth into it, even though most of these animals would have had one another for breakfast, if not him for breakfast. And then he lets them go. And then there's the story about the Tower of Babel when God purposely creates confusion by giving people different languages so they can't understand one another. And we're asked to believe it all. And of course, what that creates for us is a pretty confusing picture. There's the bit of us which wants to believe the Bible because Christians believe the Bible. And there's the bit of us which is all to do with school and university that tells us actually it ain't this way. And we get caught between the two. I was um, down in Eastbourne, um, uh, um, I can't remember, not so long ago, and I was wandering along the front in Eastbourne with someone who has been a Christian for decades and decades. And he simply said to me uh, this, I remember him saying it, it was a sunny day, we were going past the pier, and he said, Steve, if in the end I can't even believe the first page of the first book in the Bible, I'm going to give up on my faith altogether. So that's why we're going to look at these passages over the next um, few weeks. Because here's a big principle. If we believe that you can only hang on to the spiritual relevance of these chapters and stories by forfeiting your intellect, something has gone wrong. I pray, I really hope, that by the end of what I say uh, now, and then we're going to take communion, I pray and I hope that you be, think more of the bread and the wine you take. And my prayer and my hope is that as a result of what we say in these next few minutes, tomorrow morning in your office, wherever it is, or your home, wherever it is, you will think more of the people that you're interacting with. 
And my prayer is that whether you voted Labour or Conservative or Lib Dem or something else, you'll think more of the people that actually voted a different way and are of a different political opinion to you. Because if you don't, we've not got Genesis chapter 1. That's the point. It's if we don't do these things, if they don't make a practical difference in the way we conduct ourselves day to day and hour to hour, that's when we've not got hold of what Genesis chapter 1 is about. In coming weeks, we're going to look at uh, chapter 2 and etc., etc. All of those awkward and difficult stories, and then we'll leave it there. We are 100 years on from Charles Darwin. And a hundred years on from Darwin's great insight, hundred years, more than a hundred years on from Darwin's great insights, still evolution is believed by some people who say they understand the Bible to be a kind of heresy. An unspoke, uh, uh, it's unnamed as a heresy, but it's a heresy that we've got to run from. And even if people aren't in that situation, another thing that Christians tend to do with Genesis chapter 1 is this kind of really uncomfortable, really tortuous attempt at a reconciliation between science and Genesis 1. I heard someone just say to me, literally the other day, probably this week just gone, they said, well, you know, in Genesis 1, a day isn't necessarily a day. It's not necessarily 24 hours. It's kind of more, you know, figurative, like the day of the triffid or you, you know, something like that. It just means a length of time. And if we can just understand the bit of poetry there, then it all makes sense. The truth is, at that level, it doesn't make sense at all. It still requires the assassination of your intellect. But it was never meant to make sense in that way. God, in Genesis chapter 1, creates vegetation. He creates the waters. I'll talk about that in a moment. Then he creates vegetation on earth. And then on the fourth day of creation, on the fourth day, he gets round to saying, Now, I'll create two great lights, the sun and the moon. Oh, and I'll fling all the stars in as well. So he's created the earth and it's got vegetation and the plants are growing and they're bearing seeds and then he thinks we'll get the sun and we'll have a moon. There is no way just to push the point home that if this is some kind of historical narrative it stacks up with any understanding of the world and you may say I believe Genesis 1 literally but if you're a gardener, you still rely on sunlight to make your seeds develop. So every Christian who believes literally in this order of creation, but keeps their plants in a greenhouse to grow them, understands that actually this order of creation doesn't make logical sense. But some of this might seem to some of you as an attack on this. It's not attack on, uh, attack on this. It's actually the opposite. It's so that we can not just reconcile 
the world in which we live with these great stories that the Bible contains. But it's much more than that. Here is what I believe. I believe that Genesis chapter 1, for instance, as we're talking about it this morning, is fundamentally important to the human race and the decisions we take as we enter Brexit, as we think about our society, as we ask ourselves about housing in this area and schooling in this area and employment in this area, as we think about resourcing our communities, as we think about our foreign policy, as we think about what we should be doing in Syria, as we think about our responsibilities in Africa where there's drought, as we think about the issue of climate change, you are lost without a deep understanding of this great song. The problem is that when we understand it literally, which it was never, ever, ever, as I hope I'll explain, supposed to be, we rob it of depth and we rob it of meaning and we rob it of relevance and challenge to our lives. I hope I'll uh, explain that. So, is this story true? I believe it's absolutely true. Is it true as a historical narrative? No. But if it's true as a historical narrative, it's shallow and robbed of its purpose and meaning. This isn't history, it is theology and poetry. The problem with calling it poetry is you look at it and go, well, it doesn't rhyme, does it? The thing about poetry, as some of you who've studied poetry in university will know that the whole concept of rhyme and rhythm, which is pretty important to uh, English uh, poetry, except for blank verse, of course, was never part and has never been part of most poetry in most parts of the world. This is a poem because of its parallelism. It's a poem because of its play on terminology. Of course, much of that is lost in English as well. But it's a hymn, as Dave said, a hymn of creation. So, it's truer than history because it's theology. If we misread it and think it's about six days of creation, literal days of creation... We leave ourselves bereft of its deep meaning and purpose. A little bit of, um, of that um, poetry, just a little bit and then we move on, is did you notice when Dave was reading it, I'm sure you know this, at the end of each day it says, and there was evening and there was morning a first day, and there was evening and morning a second day, and there was evening and morning a third day. Do you know? Yeah? I'm sure you're aware of that. And you go, there you go, it's even got that the wrong way round. You get morning and then evening, not evening and then morning. Well, actually, it's a theological statement. It's a theological statement that the Jewish people gathered through and still maintain today. When does the Sabbath day begin here in London for Jews? It begins on, it's Friday at sundown. Sundown on Friday is the start of the Sabbath. And the Sabbath lasts from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. It's, it 
it's celebrated that way across London and every city and every place where Jews are. Is that something special that they're doing for the Sabbath day? Whereas in actual fact, they regard Monday as beginning in the morning and ending at night, midnight, etc. No, it's not. In Jewish thinking, which now has got muddled by the fact that Jews are in a culture where actually Monday starts at you know, one minute past midnight. So you're living in two worlds. But in Jewish thinking, every day always began at sundown and always ended with the next sundown for a simple theological reason. It's this. The Jewish people believed that the darkness gave way to the light. They did not believe that light gives way to darkness. It's picked up in John's Gospel when it says that Jesus, the light of the world, was coming into the world and the darkness could not overcome it. Theologically, Genesis 1 is saying darkness, lack of hope, lack of purpose, always in the end gives way to light. It's not that light is snuffed out by darkness. This hymn was saying to its readers, have hope. Have hope. However dark the situation is at the beginning, it ends in light. That's an extraordinary poetic statement and a truth about the whole of life. Anyway, I'd like to introduce you to these. These... um, tablets. Actually, there's seven of them. You can only fit um, four of them on the screen, with you being able to see the writing just about. These tablets were discovered in Mosul. We all know about Mosul because it's in the news all the time. They were discovered in Mosul in 1849. Now, they were all cracked, so the bits with no writing on it, it's just clay that's um, filled in there. And they were, they were discovered Um, in Mosul 1849 and they were brought to the British Museum so you can go and see them up the road actually but there's seven of them as I say not six of them uh, not four of them there and uh, the the writing on them is what's called cuneiform it's a kind of ancient Babylonian um, uh, ancient Babylonian it's sometimes called Akkadian and uh, that's what these tablets are written on now Mosul's a really important place you've heard of it often by another name. Mosul is actually Nineveh, the city in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that's talked about a lot. It's the city of Nineveh. And the city of Nineveh was the center of the ancient uh, Near East world. It was in, you've heard this name as well, haven't you? Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia. Then we talk about I said, this is written in Old Babylonian. So we go, you know, when we read the Bible or hear people talking about the Bible, they talk about Mesopotamia, then they talk about Babylonia, then they talk about Assyria, and it all goes on and on and on. In actual fact, Mesopotamia is the whole region, and it was reigned over and ruled over by the Sumerians, and then by the Babylonians, and then by the Assyrians, and then etc., etc., Mesopotamia is a region of the world, still today. And it sounds a lot like another name you know, 
um, Mesopotamia, hippopotamus. The potter in Mesopotamia and the, the pote in hippopotamus is the same word. And it simply means between two rivers. Mesopotamia is the land between two great rivers. Look on a map, not now, don't Google it. The Tigris and the Euphrates. And the hippopotamus was the creature that lived between the two rivers. It means land between two rivers. And it is one of the cradles of civilization. We know that it's one of the places, our, our science doesn't allow us to say exactly, but it's one of the places, the other place uh, at life, uh, people suspect began is, is in the south of Africa. Um, it's one of the seats of humanity, the cradles of humanity, as it's called. And we've got loads of writing from Mesopotamia and Nineveh. And the reason is quite simply this, um, because there's loads of clay there. And what happened was they were ahead and they developed cuneiform and they developed a way of writing. But they also had the clay, so they made tablets, clay tablets. And the clay has survived, whereas in other countries where there wasn't clay and they wrote on papyrus, it's all gone. So, there's, so we've lost a lot of other... Um, uh, lots of other sources from around the world. But over the last 150 years, we've just found so much evidence from history. This is one of the problems, you see, because ch Christians in churches just haven't kept, kept up with what's going on. And there's, there's a kind of Christian, perhaps it's an age thing, actually, that says, I want to bury my head in the sand and I just want to believe it all simply. Like, like the early church fathers did. Well, the early church fathers didn't have the tools of linguistics and archaeology and sociology and anthropology that we have. In actual fact, we're all supposed to, are we not, use the tools that we've got in any age to get as far as we possibly can. Anyway, these tablets were dug up and they are known as, together, the seven of them, are known as Enuma Elish. Often you see it written quite not like that. You see Elish with an H on the end. But that's the kind of ancient Babylonian. It's called Enuma Elish. And it's the Babylonian creation story. And it's on these seven tablets. Um, and uh, uh, the, uh, yes, yeah, so Enuma Elish. It's called Enuma Elish because Enuma Elish, the first two words of the story, it, it, the first two words of the story in the Genesis 1 are uh, in the beginning. Well, that's actually two words, but if we turn it into three in English, in the beginning. The first two words of the Babylonian uh, story are when on high. Translate as when on high. Enuma Elish, when on high. And anyway, this was found in 1849. It was brought back here. It's an amazing story, actually, uh, because a guy called George Smith, you should read about him. He was some, I can't forget where he was born. I think he was like in Hackney or somewhere. He's like this kid from Hackney, and, you know, he's like a nothing from Hackney. I mean, I'm, if you come from Hackney, I'm not saying all people from Hackney are nothings, but George was like 
going nowhere in life. And they took him on as an apprentice in the British Museum. And it turned out he had a real kind of thing. He was pretty good at decrypting all of this stuff. And he became more and more and more and more and more famous. In fact, he became famous around the world in the end. And when he finally he decrypted all of this and some other stuff that we'd talk about on another Sunday, finally when he decrypted it all, he did a public reading of it. And the Prime Minister of the day, who was called William Gladstone, Gladstone pitched up and sat in the British Museum whilst George Smith read this. It was on the front pages of all the papers. The reason is, it changed everything. It changed the way we thought. Gone the wrong way there. So, what is this? The Babylonian creation story predates Genesis by at least 800 years. The Genesis chapter 1 story was written down about 500 years, written down for the first time about 500 years before Jesus lived. But the written form of the Babylonian creation story, was writ- the written form was first recorded at least 800 years before that. Now both stories date back from before the written record, you know, they were told as folk stories. You know, most people couldn't read and most people couldn't write, so you just passed on stories. So both existed in oral form, but we know that Genesis, get ready for this, Genesis chapter 1 reflects this story. This story predates Genesis chapter 1, but Genesis chapter 1, the hymn in Genesis chapter 1, sounds like, looks like, It's copying this story because it is. It is copying it. And you probably think, oh, no, that's terrible. I can't believe that. Well, here's bad luck. It's just true. You know, it's like, I don't believe the earth's round. It says in the Psalms that it's flat. Bad luck. Wake up. It's round. This story predates. But that's not a threat. It actually gives us a real insight into what Genesis chapter 1 is really all about. Now, the interesting thing, did you hear me say the Babylonian creation myth or story, I'll come to the word myth in a sec, um, is written on seven tablets. Genesis chapter 1, God creates the day in seven days. Wow, isn't that interesting? But there's endless more uh, to all of this and I'll unpack uh, a little bit of that but I promise only a little bit of it because we want to move on and and uh, have have communion I said I'd talk about myth this is the Babylonian creation myth a myth is not a fairy story when you get told that the Bible begins with a myth because Genesis 1 is a myth as well you go oh no that's it it's all a myth it's not true a myth is not a fairy story a myth is the closest English word I can think of for it is a fable or parable you know when Jesus said there was uh, there, there was a man who went down the road and he was attacked and then there was a good Samaritan he was telling a story was it literally true it was Packed with depth and meaning. A fable is that. A myth is that. And what myths did was give plausibility and structure to a whole society. 
So the myth contained the core, the essence of everything a society believed about itself. It was a plausibility structure. Have you heard that term? It gave meaning to life for everyone. That's what a myth is. It's packed with meaning. And in Genesis chapter 1, if you take the Babylonian creation myth, by the way, there are many, many versions of this. You know, it's, so if, if anybody is listening to this, who's you know, out there because it gets recorded, who's a kind of literalist, it's no good saying, oh, these seven tablets, they were made up, I'm sure. There are hundreds of thousands of these. There are lots and lots of different versions of these, this story. In the Babylonian creation myth, the version found in Nineveh, actually it was found in a library, the king's library in, in Nineveh, in Mosul. But there are many other versions that date earlier. And sometimes the details change and move on because what a community believes about itself evolves and develops. There are lots and lots of them. We know about this. But we stick for a moment to this most famous version, uh, which was found in Mosul. There are some similarities. I'll deal with these very carefully. But the point is this. Let me get get the, the, the point out to you before I talk about the similarities and the differences. Here's the truth. Genesis chapter 1 borrows themes from Enuma Elish. Genesis chapter 1 rejects some themes from Enuma Elish. Genesis chapter 1 critiques Enuma Elish. Genesis chapter 1, from Israel's perspective, corrects and subverts Enuma Elish. So if you understand and can read Enuma Elish, and then you can read Genesis 1, instead of going, oh, it's a watered-down version of that, my faith's not unique, instead you say, that's what these pagan people believed about themselves and creation and the world. This is what the thinkers in Israel believed. It's exciting. It is exciting. So, Very, very briefly, and forgive me, anyone who knows anything about this, I'm not really doing justice to it because it's kind of whole hour in itself. But the similarities are chaos reigns. You see at the beginning of Genesis that the earth without form and it was void. And on day one, what God does is he separates the waters. Do Do you remember that? He separates the waters and he creates a vault in the middle which becomes earth. Did we just read that? Say yes, because you did. Yeah, you just the waters are separated and a vault is created. There are similarities. Here's the story of Enuma Elish very quickly. There were two gods. They didn't like one another. Well, they, yeah, well, they warred, but then they got married, you know, and had sex. That's what happens um, sometimes, isn't it? And um, and one was called Apsu. Apsu was the male, but he was the god of fresh water. And, and Tiamat, who became his partner, was the god of salt water. Now, remember, everyone believed that the earth was flat and, where, and you reached the edge and it was just water. And it was salt water and people hated the salt water because it locked them in and you couldn't eat it. But the fresh water fell from the sky. So under the earth, it was uh, everyone, the Jews, everyone believed, under the earth and around the earth was salt water that was horrible and above the earth was fresh water that was life-giving. 
And Apsu was the god of fresh water, and Tiamat was the god of salt water. And in the Babylonian creation story, Apsu and Tiamat get together and get it on and all the rest of it, and they have some children, and the children become the gods. And those gods have some children, and one of those is is a god called Marduk. He's pretty important to this story. So what happens is the salt water and the, and the, um, and the fresh water mingle uh, together and they have gods. There's no creation yet. There's just these gods getting it on and having loads of children gods. And one of the grandchildren is called Marduk. And um, the, the grandchildren don't like the old man, Apsu. They really don't like him because they decided they need his place because he brings the fresh water and everybody, you know, everybody thinks he's the greatest because he brings the fresh water. So they decide to take on their grandparents and they slaughter Apsu. And they, and, and uh, then Tiamat, the mum, she gets really angry and she hears that they're planning to slaughter her. So she gets her forces together and she is the goddess of salt water. Ah, the murky deeps. And the gods decide to take her on, but she can outwit them and she can outweaponize them. They are going to be dead. But Marduk, who's the god of Babylon, goes to see all his brothers and sisters and he says... If you'll sign this and make me the grand leader of the whole world and make Babylon the center of the world, I will lead you into battle. So they all say, yeah, we'll sign here. And they all sign up. And Marduk leads them into battle and he sees Tiamat and he gets a knife and he goes into battle with her. And here's the gory bit. He slits her open. He slits her open right down the front and he wrenches her apart. And the earth, the vault... The earth is one half of her, and the sky is the other half, the stars. Woman is oppressed and subjugated by the male, even in the creation story, Enuma Elish. But then it gets worse. The gods fight now about who's going to be in control and he appoints certain gods to be in control of the stars because he's made the universe out of the split carcass of, of um, Tiamat. And then the gods say, hey, what's going on here? What's going on? Like, we've created this thing by mistake. So what do we do? And, and Marduk says, well, the center is Babylon. Let's create people as our slaves. And they create people as their slaves. And that's as far as I'm going to go with the story. So, the similarities are there was chaos. But that's where the similarities really end. There are more minor ones, lots more minor ones. I don't have a moment to talk about. But here are the differences. In Enuma Elish, there are many gods... In Genesis 1, there is one God. It's the difference between polytheism and monotheism. It's the difference between warring gods and a God who is love. It's the difference between polytheism and monotheism. And it's the difference between rage and love. In Enuma Elish, the world and all creation comes out of the rage and the hostility of their gods. In Genesis 1, creation is born out of love by a God who says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. In Enuma Elish, no one says it's good. No one even intended to make it. 
the universe is simply a byproduct of a slaughter. Polytheism to monotheism, rage to love, here comes a really big one. From slavery to crowning glory. Humanity in Enuma Elish are the slaves of the gods who are uncaring and unthinking and unmovable. But in Genesis chapter 1, humanity becomes the crowning glory. And though God has said, it's good, it's good, it's good of the plants and the fish and the, and the animals, etc., etc., when it gets to humanity, God says, it's very good. We are celebrated, not demeaned by Genesis chapter 1. It's about Inclusion, not exclusion. The big difference between Enuma Elish and Genesis chapter 1 is Enuma Elish, like all the other versions of it, other, com- other uh, countries copied it, and they did their own versions, by the way. But in all of them, they're all nationalistic. Marduk is the god of Babylon. It's all about Babylon. It's all about Babylon. You can read Genesis chapter 1 all the way through, and there is no mention of Israel in it. There's no mention of the king of Israel. It's not about Israel at all. It's about the whole of humanity. It's not nationalistic. It's not local. It's not tribal. It's universal. Everyone's in. It's the story of the universe and humanity. It's not a nationalistic story of a certain set of people who want to keep themselves protected from everyone else. And lastly, it's the story... Of hierarch- from hierarchy to democracy. Again, you can go to the British Museum. You really should. You know, we all live in London. I say to the kids in the school here all the time, I'm sure others do, it's not me. It's like, you know, sometimes people say, but this school hasn't got a playground, and you can go down to some of our other schools, and they've got massive playgrounds. You know, there are some of our schools that got car parks bigger than the whole site here before you even get in the front door. But I say to the kids here, I say to, I saw, so I'm talking to a gang of them um, on, on Thursday, I think it was, or Friday, I said, London is your playground. It's the best playground on the planet. And the British Museum is an extraordinary place. You can go see all of this. You can go see Enuma Elish up the road this afternoon. Hey, how wonderful is that? They even translate it for you. Just in case you think I'm making this up. Go check it out. But I'll tell you what else they've got. From Iraq again, because Iraq is in modern day uh, Mesopotamia, Iraq and Kuwait and uh, bits of Libya and bits of Turkey and uh, Syria, bits of Syria. They're all in modern day uh, Mesopotamia. In Iraq again, a few years ago, we dug up, well, we had nothing to do with it, but somebody dug up a representation of the king. And round the base of the king, which was set up in a city, it basically says, I can't remember the exact inscription, but it basic, and I can't even remember the king's name, but it's got the king's name and it says, it tells you his name and it says, the representative of Marduk. Genesis chapter 1 subverts all that. You see, they used to believe, in fact, Enuma Elish, the Babylonian creation story, teaches that the king is in God's image and everybody else is subservient. The king is in God's image and all other men and priests and lords and rulers and serfs and everyone else and especially women who were beaten to pulp to create the whole thing in the first place. They are nothing. And here comes Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. 
and God. The God of the whole universe, not one of the gods playing at it. Who created everything without any help from anyone else. Who created the stars and the moon and the planets who aren't gods. They're just resources that he has. They're just the materials he uses. There's no Apsil and there's no tire map. The sea above and beneath. They're just resources that he has and materials that he uses. The God of the whole universe says, let us create humanity, mankind, in our image. And in his image, he created them, it tells you, male and female, everyone. This is the different story. This is the story that changes everything. This is the story that changes, the, uh, changes life. So, one last slide and then we're going to uh, take bread and wine. Imago Dei. Imago Dei is a Latin term that means the image of God. It's used all the time. You hear it on the radio and sometimes even on telly, you know, people will talk about the Imago Dei. It means image of God in Latin and it's used very widely. The image of God. What Genesis chapter 1, the hymn says, oh, and by the way, do you know what the hymns were used for? Enuma Elish was used, it was recited publicly at the Babylonian New Year, which was in the spring. Every New Year, they'd have a public festival and everyone would act it out and the priest would say it. Do you know what Genesis chapter 1 was written for? We know this, I haven't got time to explain. It was written for public worship. It's, it's rhetorical if you uh, read it through. There's a bit for the priest and a bit for the people. It's like a typical C of E piece of liturgy. That's what it actually is. And it was there to remind them every time that they were, the universe isn't about violence. And it's not about war. And humanity's not some afterthought. And humanity are not slaves. And it's not just the king who's in God's image. It's everyone who's included. And we are the act of love. And there is one God who we can place our trust in. Who is the God of the whole earth and not just some local bod. That's amazing, isn't it? That's what it's about. So we're all made in God's image. You're made in God's image. And, the, and the, the Lib Dem or the Tory or the Labour Party member that you didn't like, they're in God's image. And Theresa May's in God's image. And if our politics falls into a place where we rip each other apart, we've denied Genesis chapter 1 and that brings it home. Oh, it's okay to believe it was all made in six days and all the rest of it because it's a piece of a obscure history that makes no difference to your speech and your thought and your attitudes of embrace. But understand it this way and it asks big questions of how we treat each other on a day-to-day basis for we are all in God's image God democratizes the world on the first page of this book as we take communion as Jesus gave the bread and wine to his disciples remember he included Judas and he included Thomas the doubter and he included Peter who was just going to go and betray him He included them all and he said, oh, take this wine and take this bread. I have a friend who works for Rochester um, Rochester, um, Cathedral. And uh, he had the privilege um, a few years ago, told me this story, of traveling out to Calcutta to Mother Teresa's um, uh, uh, original house for the poor and the dying. This was after Teresa's death. And he travelled out there. 
and uh, he walked the streets of Calcutta, I don't know if you've ever done that, and seen the discrimination that is there and the low classes and the even non-class non, uh, people. They, they, they don't fit into any category at all. They are just, the caste system just puts them out altogether. And what Teresa did is took in everyone and he told me this. He went into a room and he watched a nurse who was called Sister Luke. I remember the name he told me. Sister Luke. He watched this nurse treating a dying outcast. An old woman who wasn't even a member of the lowest caste. These people in uh, India are not allowed out in daylight. I don't know if you know that. They can only come out at night when others won't see them. And he told me that he watched Sister Luke treating and caring for and stroking this old dying woman who was of a non-caste. And he said, you know, it was amazing. And what was amazing is that Sister Luke had taken a piece of chalk and she'd written on the wall above the bed, behold, the body of Christ. And he said that every now and then, as she, cared, as, he, as she cared for the elderly lady, she looked above at these words, behold the body of Christ. And she looked down and continued her work. That comes from Genesis chapter 1. Behold the body of God, the body of Christ. We are all in God's image. We're going to take some bread and wine together. As you know, this is celebrated in churches around the world. Jesus said, all of you take and eat. It's easy to reduce what Jesus was saying at what we call communion now to simplistic terms, but it works on all sorts of levels all the time. That's the genius of Jesus, isn't it? Or one of his geniuses. He says something simple that means so much at all these different levels. So we come to take some bread and wine and we'll come to the front together in your own time. Take some bread, there's some gluten-free. I think that's an innovation. Even Jesus hadn't thought of that. But there's some gluten-free bread. But the point is, you take a piece of bread and you t we're taking a little um, piece of wine from the same cup. All comes from the same place. And we are saying, we are one. Every man and every woman is made in God's image. And we're going to live that out symbolically here. And then we're going to live it out on purpose, intentionally, even when it's tough, tomorrow and tonight in our conversation. As we honor people instead of put them down and recognize that if we think less of them, God thinks more of them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the diversity in this church building right now. We thank you for everyone who's here that we know, that we count as our friend, who's the same as us, who we've got to appreciate. We thank you for everyone who's here this morning that we don't know and have never spoken to. And we realize that in this diversity, we represent a tiny slice of humanity. 
We have different backgrounds and understandings and temperaments and languages and cultures and backgrounds. As we come to take this one cup and this one bread, this one loaf that Jesus called us to do, we pray that what we do now will simply be a symbol of the way that we choose to live in the light of this great hymn that we call Genesis 1 that starts our Bible this week. Be with us as we live out the truths that subvert that old pagan story and enrich it and deepen it and turn it into a hymn of praise to the God of love. Amen. And so Jesus broke some bread and he said to his disciples, take, eat, all of it. Even those who don't like each other, you, you don't get on very well, but you're all in this together. And then he said, drink from this one cup. As you choose to come, everyone's welcome. I was talking to someone last week in another church who said, I can't go and take communion because I wasn't confirmed. This, you know, that's an extra Jesus saying there. You know, this is for everyone who wants to say, I love you, God, this majestic story you sing over me that tells me I'm made in your image and I want to serve others and I'll follow Christ in doing that. Come as you choose, as Felicity plays. And as you come, there's also a chance to post up your prayers, the prayers that we did on those post-it notes earlier, if you choose, on these two sheets here.